The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take your Bibles now. Let's open them to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I'd like to read our scripture text this evening before we begin our our study uh, of this uh, text this evening. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter, uh, to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as our Lord God, as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now there are two verses here that we want to pay close attention to this evening that we'll use for the text. These are verses 41 and 42. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized... And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. Now here we have the first church at Jerusalem participating in the two ordinances that God has given to the church. First of all, they baptized believers upon hearing the gospel of Christ. And then those believers were added to the church and then they held on to the apostles' doctrine. It says they were steadfast in that doctrine, and then they uh, prayed, they broke bread, so on, that it says there. And in that breaking of bread, we see the second ordinance. The first is the baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper. Now, in, in our part, uh, this part of our study of doctrinal discernment, we're dealing with the Baptist acrostic, and the doctrines that we talked about thus far you should be able to fill in, as I said last Sunday night, the B in Baptist stands for biblical authority. The A is the autonomy of the local church. The P is the priesthood of the believer. And the T, the first T in Baptist is two ordinances. Now, last week, we, we began a discussion of this first T. The Lord has given two ordinances to the church. He's given only two. They aren't sacraments. They're not a means of saving grace, not for the lost, and neither are they a means of adding any grace to those that are believers. The ordinances for the church are memorial signs, and what they do, they are remembrances of the work of Christ, that baptism signifies our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It shows what we have believed in the heart. And then the Lord's Supper is the memorial of uh, Christ's death, and the elements that are in the supper remind us that we are partakers of Christ's body and his blood. Now, this evening, our concentration is baptism. And our beliefs about baptism separate us from others. Many people think that we are Baptist because baptism is so important to us that 
Uh, we put it in the name because we believe that baptism has something to do with saving us. Well, Baptists didn't actually name themselves. We didn't give ourselves a name. Our enemies gave it to us. And we've been known by many different names throughout the centuries. Uh, one of the latest before we became Baptist or known as Baptist is the term Anabaptist. Anna means to do again or to do it over. And so we were known as rebaptizers because when those who came to us who had not been baptized in true churches or if they had not been baptized by the right method, then what we did was to rebaptize them, to baptize them over. And the rebaptisms were really a huge scandal. It meant that we didn't respect the authority of these other churches, that there was something wrong with their converts and with their baptisms. And so we baptized them again upon credible professions of faith, and then we brought them into our churches. Now, what we're talking about here is not something that happened in 1960 or 1950. We're going all the way back here to the 17th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries that we're talking about, the name change and so forth, to what we're called Baptists today. Well, later, about the 17th century, the prefix Anna was dropped, and then we were simply known as Baptist. And ironically, we're known as Baptists not because we believe that baptism saves us, but we are called that, we're called that because we do not believe that baptism saves us. That, that is why our enemies named us this way. Well, tonight in our study, I want to show you why we believe that uh, the baptisms of these other churches are wrong. And we want to talk about some things that are necessary for, for baptism, the scriptural requirements of baptism, and uh, a requirement that would, requirements that would enable us to have the same kind of baptism that we find in the New Testament, or what Ephesians chapter 4 calls the one baptism of the church. Now, to begin with, I want you to look uh, in your Bibles at Romans chapter 6. And here we find what the Bible has to say about the symbolism of baptism. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse number 1, Romans 6, verse number 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even also we, should, uh, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, first of all, my purpose is not to give you a denominational view of baptism. I don't want to present to you tonight several ways that baptism can be done, several different acceptable views, but I want to show you what the Bible has to say about the subject, and of course it is the Bible that determines the truth. It's not somebody's denominational practice that makes it right. This is what uh, we call the Baptist view. It's not denominational because we don't believe that in denominationalism, we, we don't believe that the church is split into hundreds of different factions that all have complementary views of Christianity, although they're not the same views, but they complement one another. But we be, believe that Christ began one church uh, with one doctrine known as the faith, 
And that faith has always been consistent throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. Christ's church is not denominational because it's not divided. The church is not universal because there really isn't anything that's more mixed up and divided than the so-called universal invisible church. As I said on Wednesday night, that's a church that has no meetings, a church that has no sermons, that has no fellowship, and has no ordinances. So the myth that we are all one church in Christ because it's universal really does not have any practical fulfillment in the Scriptures. We don't believe that you get into the church by a Holy Spirit baptism, which is what most people teach about it, but rather there is one baptism, not a dozen varieties of it, and that one baptism is baptism in water. So what does the Bible teach about it? We can start with our statement of faith in Article 14. I hope you are familiar with the statement of faith. And the 14th article deals with the ordinances. Let me read to you the part that has to do with baptism. It says, We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer under the authority of a New Testament Baptist church into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life, that it is prerequisite to the privileges of church relation. I want to break down that statement into, into four basic truths that it teaches us. What does the Bible have to say about scriptural baptism? Well, number one is that baptism requires a proper subject. Now, the first phrase says, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. The subject person of baptism is a believer. And that very first statement puts us at odds with the majority of those who claim to be Christian. There are 1.1 billion Roman Catholics who disagree with us on this. There are 200 million Eastern Orthodox Catholics that disagree with it. There are millions of Lutherans and Presbyterians and other Protestants that disagree with it. This is a very definitive doctrine of Baptist people, and it's a main contributing factor to the persecution of Baptists for centuries. Now, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of credo-baptism. Credo-baptism, that means believer's baptism. And that's what distinguishes the Baptist church from many others. So a person then is not baptized in order to become a believer, but he must be a believer before he is baptized. He must have already believed to the saving of his soul. He must be justified from his sins and washed clean in the blood of Christ. And he comes to the water as a child of God, having already received God's word. As we read right here in Acts 2 verse 41, where it says, They gladly received the word and they were baptized. And so this person can't believe that the means of his salvation is baptism. The person who comes has already been saved. So we can mark that down as the first thing that we need to see, that saving faith, saving faith is a prerequisite for baptism. Now, there, there are actually too many references in Scripture to go to if we want to just look at all of them and say, well, all the cases in the Bible where people that were believers were baptized. There are just so many of them. So what I've done is just to pick out two for you this evening that we can read and look at. One we've already seen, uh, another one we've already seen in Acts chapter 2. But there are two more that we'd like to look at tonight to, to show that believers were baptized. The first is in Acts chapter 8. And this has to do with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
And we're breaking into the story as Philip begins to preach to the eunuch the gospel of Christ. And in verse number 35 of Acts chapter 8, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now in verse number 36, the eunuch asked Philip, Here is water. What hinders me to be baptized? You know, I, I read this scripture. I always like to note the providence of God and his electing grace in this man's salvation. Here's a man who God had already prepared everything that was necessary for the conversion of his soul. God whisked Philip away from where he was and took him into the desert to meet this man who was reading the scriptures and had no understanding of what he was reading. And so God provided him with the preacher. God was ready to save him, and so he sent a witness to him. And that witness, Philip, pointed him to the gospel of Christ. And we don't see it in the text, but at some point during the presentation, Philip must have talked to him about baptism. Because as soon as they came to a place where there was a body of water that was sufficient for him to be baptized, the eunuch asked the question, what hinders me from being baptized? And we notice here Philip's response to him. The one requirement that Philip put upon him before he would baptize him, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, then I will baptize you. And then the eunuch affirmed his faith in Christ. He said, I believe. And so Philip baptized him. So there we have a believer. We have a born-again child of God who goes into the water for baptism. Now the next example, if you have your Bible open there, you want to turn just a couple more pages over to Acts chapter 10. We can see what happened when Peter preached the gospel to the household of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10 and verse number 43. Again, we're breaking into uh, to a message here. This is Peter speaking to Cornelius and his household. And Peter says to him, Give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So Peter preached the word to them, and they believed. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak with tongues. And when Peter saw those signs of belief, then he asked the others that were with him, Why shouldn't we baptize these people? Can you forbid, or do you have any reason that would forbid them from being baptized? Now, the Holy Ghost falling on them is that evidence of their salvation. They are truly saved now. Now, they are really believers. And so the men that were with Peter had no objections to it. They'd met the criterion of belief, and so they were baptized. Now, you search the Scriptures thoroughly, and you're not going to find any place. You will not find anyone that was baptized without saving faith. Now, the second thing that we see here is that the symbolism of baptism demands faith. Now, if we go back to that text of Romans chapter 6, 
Paul said that baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is, it is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. There isn't anyone that comes to baptism and then gets crucified. Nobody gets put into a tomb. Nobody gets put into a grave. None of that happens. All of that takes place in a figure, in a picture. 1 Peter 3, 21 says that baptism is a figure, an, a, a figure of the act that actually saves. So the person that's saved recognizes that figure. He believes what the picture represents. And if he didn't believe that, then there wouldn't be any reason for him to submit to baptism. Romans 6, 6 says, The old man is crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. And so who, who could ever experience life in Christ without having already believed what Christ did? So the symbolism of baptism demands faith. Now thirdly, we can infer from this, when we talk about credo-baptism, we can infer from this that there is no such thing as pedo-baptism. Now let's try to remember those two terms. Those are important. Credo-baptism and pedo-baptism. Credo-baptism uh, necessarily excludes pedo-baptism. Credo means to believe, like believing a creed. Pedo-baptism means the baptism of infants. A person who is baptized must have a creed. There is something that he believes, but infants do not have a creed. They can't believe. They, they can't understand anything. There isn't a purpose for baptizing an infant. Uh, a child receives no grace from it. We've been over that, that it's not a sacrament. There's no salvation that's in it. There is no creed in it because he can't believe. And so, therefore, infants should not be baptized. Now, if we look at the scriptures on the subject, have you ever noticed this? Did you, did you know this? That all people were at one time infants. Did you know that? All people were at one time infants. Why isn't there one infant baptized in the New Testament? Why would we ever have to be left to guess whether there was an infant baptized? Wouldn't we actually see Paul doing that regularly? Wouldn't we see that in the epistles? Wouldn't there be some kind of instruction there that tells us how to carry this out and what we do with baptizing infants. And yet we see, we see no instruction for it. There's not one example of it in the Bible. There is no passage that says that a baby was baptized. And on the day of Pentecost, when they baptized 3,000 people, these were all people that Peter said to them, repent and believe and be baptized. There weren't any infants baptized on the day of Pentecost. When the churches were organized in the book of Acts, there's nothing said about an infant being baptized. The New Testament ought to be filled with the examples of infant baptism. Why? Because all people were at one time infants. And if that's what we're supposed to do, then you would find hundreds of infant baptisms in the Scripture. In fact, the first thing that Paul would do whenever he went into a town and started to preach, he would say, bring me all of your infants. Let's get them baptized. This is the best thing that we can do for them. But we see none of that in the Scripture. So in order to have a proper baptism, we've got to start right here. The person, the subject of it, must be a believer. Secondly, baptism requires the proper mode. The first phrase of the statement of faith says, We believe Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. Now, we notice there in that statement that it says Christian baptism. This is what I was talking a little bit about this morning. 
that it's a hint why we are rebaptizers. When somebody baptizes an adult who is an unbeliever in order to get them saved, or if someone baptizes an infant and people you know come up and they maybe even later get saved, but they were baptized as an infant, we rebaptize them because that was not a Christian baptism. We believe in a Christian baptism, and that is what I've just stated, a baptism of a believer. So what is, this, what is this phrase, immersion in water, what does that tell us? Well, that's an easy one, I think. It tells us that baptism is by immersion. That's the mode of it. Now, I hope you explain, uh, understand rather the water part of it, that we baptize in water. We don't baptize in milk. We don't baptize in, in uh, whipped cream or anything like that. We don't baptize in grape juice. We, we use grape juice in the Lord's Supper, but we never baptized anybody in it before. It's baptism in water. That's the easy one, I think. Is it biblical to say that baptism is by immersion? Don't we see that in Acts 8? It says that both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. At Jesus' baptism, the scripture says this, Matthew 3:16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. I scratch my head whenever I see that famous painting of Jesus and John the Baptist standing in the middle of the Jordan River. And John the Baptist is pouring a cup of water on top of his head. And you have to wonder, what in the world did they get soaking wet for? Why are they standing in the middle of the river if all that John was going to do was pour a cup of water on his head? Oh, it's obvious that they went into the water so John the Baptist could immerse him. Now, the Gospel of John says that John baptized in Enon because there was much water there. Why? Well, so that he could immerse people, fully immerse them, put them under the water. In Israel today, you can go to a place, so you can visit this, uh, uh, a place where the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee and They've set that place aside, and many people go there. Thousands of tourists go there to be baptized. Now, my first comment about that would be there is no biblical significance to being baptized in the Jordan River. In fact, if you are already a believer in Christ and you have a scriptural baptism, you wouldn't want to do that again. You, do, you wouldn't want to go to the Jordan River. There's no value in getting baptized in the Jordan. In fact, that would be an anti-scriptural thing to do. But at least people understand this much. When they go there, they put them in the water. You don't see people putting on robes and running through the yard while the lawn sprinklers are sprinkling all over them. No, they go to the river, they get down in it to get baptized, to be immersed into the water. So people understand that. Do you know that even the Roman Catholics recognized for centuries that baptism by immersion was the proper way to do it. They even baptized infants by immersion for a long, long time until they finally decided to change it. Both Luther and Calvin recognized that the original method of baptism was immersion. Then they started sprinkling, they supported sprinkling, but they did understand that baptism is by immersion. Um, nobody really argues about the biblical method. I mean, if, if you've done 15 minutes of study on the Greek words, for baptism, the, the word itself, baptizo, then you have no doubt that what it means is immersion. Now, if Acts chapter 8 had been translated in this way, that the eunuch said to Philip, here is water, what doth hinder you from immersing me? That would have been exactly correct. That's the real translation of the word. It's a word that means to dip or to plunge. Nobody 
disputes that the word means to immerse, to put all the way underneath the water. And there wouldn't have been an argument over it unless, except that people decided sprinkling was simply a more convenient thing to do. It started out with sprinkling sick people. It's easier to sprinkle water on a sick person than it is to take him and put him all, all the way underneath the water. And then baptizing babies, that's not the right thing to do, but if you're going to do it, why not make it easy? How do you keep a screaming infant from going crazy if you put him under the water? Well, don't put him under the water. Sprinkle him. Put a little bit of water on top of him. Calm him down. So why don't we do that? Why don't we? It sure be less expensive on, it, would, on us, wouldn't it? I mean, filling this baptistry over here in Roner Park where water costs five ninety nine a gallon? I mean, it'd be so much cheaper if we just sprinkled. Why don't we do that? Because it wouldn't be a Christian baptism. Because it doesn't meet the New Testament and what it says. Why don't we? Well, it's because of the next point. That baptism pictures something. It pictures a burial and a resurrection. Now, in the New Testament, baptism would never have been done in any other way than by immersion. Because Romans chapter 6 says we are buried with Christ in baptism. And, of course, we shouldn't have to worry about it anyway because the word means immersion. Romans 6 says we are buried with him by immersion. If you wanted to put the word there, we are buried with him by immersion into his death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's what it means. That's what it pictures. I don't blame the King James translators for saying baptism when they translated this. I mean, what they didn't do, they didn't actually translate the word. They transliterated the word. And baptism was, the word was already in use before the King James translators uh, made their translation. But we could look at that for a minute and we could think about it. You know, there are people who uh, insist that the King James Bible is inspired. Now, the Bible is inspired, but the King James Bible is a translation. And the translators of the King James were not inspired. But there are people who believe that the translation is inspired. And then you'd have to wonder, then why did God leave everybody with confusion over this issue of the word baptize? Why didn't he just inspire the King James translators to say immerse instead of transliterating the Greek word baptizo? That's just something for us to think about. There isn't anything wrong with the word baptize as long as we take time to understand what the word means, figure out what it means. Now, the picture, according to Romans chapter 6, is a burial and a resurrection. Uh, the simple truth of the matter is, you cannot picture a burial by sprinkling water on a person. When you go to the cemetery over here in Santa Rosa, you go over there, they put bodies in the ground. They dig the graves deep, they cover it up with dirt, and if you could do it another way, it'd be much cheaper. You'd save a lot of money on backhoes and grave diggers. You wouldn't need all of that. You'd just lay the corpses out and sprinkle a little bit of dirt on top of them. And then we wouldn't say, rest in peace. We'd all be saying, stink in peace, because the cemetery would be a very smelly place. On Memorial Day, you know, they used to call Memorial Day what? Decoration Day. Because everybody goes to the graves and put the flowers. Well, you're not going to go to the cemetery and put a plot of flowers or a pot of flowers on top of a head sticking up out of the ground, a skull. You're not going to do that. You'd stay out of the cemetery. So how do you picture a burial? You put people under. And that's what you do with the baptism. You put people under the water. And then how do you picture the resurrection? You bring them up out of the water. You know, it's a good thing we also believe in the resurrection. 
I would have drowned a lot of people if we didn't believe in the resurrection. We put them under the water, then we bring them back out. So we have to ask, whoever got the authority, whoever gave the authority for that symbolism to be changed, who is it that makes the standard? God makes the standard. When Jesus taught on the resurrection, you remember his example. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. Now imagine this for a moment. Jonah, Jonah thrown overboard and riding on top the rail through the, through the, on the whale in the Mediterranean. You, you, could you imagine that? That happens at SeaWorld, not, not in baptism. Um, so Jonah went into the whale just as Christ was dead and went into the tomb. And then he arose from the grave. He came out of the tomb. So how are you going to picture a resurrection by squirting people with a squirt gun? You can't do it. So first then we have the proper subject. Secondly, we have the proper mode. Thirdly, what do you have to have for a baptism? A right kind of baptism. Thirdly, baptism requires the proper authority. Now if I hadn't already made people mad like our Baptist forefathers did on this issue, here's where things really, really get sticky. Who has the authority to baptize. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. First we see that baptism is authorized by the Trinity. The first authorizer of baptism was God. Baptism originated with God. That'll help you with the riddle I gave you last week. Baptism originated with God. Jesus asked the, the Pharisees a question. He said, the baptism of John, was that baptism from heaven or was it of men? That was an easy question, but they didn't want to answer it. They knew that because of their rejection of John the Baptist that they would be indicted here if they said his baptism came from God. So they just refused to answer the question. But it's obvious. The, the answer is the baptism came from God. Now, obviously, God doesn't baptize people. God doesn't do it himself. He transfers that authority to men. So we look next and see that God authorized the first baptizer. The first baptizer is John the Baptist. Now, his authority, according to Jesus, came from God. Jesus thought the authority was important enough that he walked 60 miles to be baptized by John. The issue of authority was important to Paul. In Acts chapter 19, he asked some disciples that came from Ephesus, unto what were you baptized? He was very concerned about whether their baptism was right. And so through some questioning, he discovered that these disciples had probably not been baptized by John the Baptist, as they said they were. Maybe somebody else had baptized them and in the name of John, and they were ignorant of John's baptism because they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And John taught about the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that that was wrong. He knew their understanding of baptism was wrong, that they didn't have the right authority. The administrator of baptism is very important. And when Paul spoke to those people, John had been dead for a long, long time. So then how did Paul baptize them? Where did he get his authority? John could not pass his authority to others. It was given to him by God, but he had, doesn't have the authority to pass his baptism on to others. So how did others get authority? Jesus took care of that problem. He gave them heaven's authority. Let's look at that next. Thirdly, Christ authorized the church to baptize. Now first, Jesus and the, bap 
uh, apostles are baptized by John the Baptist. When a new apostle was chosen to replace Judas, that one requirement, or one of the requirements was, he must have the baptism of John. We've read this in Acts chapter 1. We looked at this a couple of times. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and all of the apostles uh, were present for John's baptism. So all of them had John's baptism, and it was John's job. I mean, the reason that he baptized the apostles was to prepare the spiritual building material of the first church. In John chapter 4, Jesus gave his apostles the authority to baptize. We see that they're doing it. John didn't transfer the authority, it was Jesus. And so it says in John 4, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. So the disciples continued to baptize under Jesus' authority. And then what did he do with these apostles? What, what happened to them? He made them into his first church. According to 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, it says that Christ set the apostles in the church first. And then when Jesus was ready to ascend into heaven, he left the apostles with the commission in which he said, go into the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, and baptize them. Now, a very important point to understand here is that Jesus did not transfer the authority to baptize to them as individuals. He transferred the authority to them as the church. And that's important because the disciples would all die. It wouldn't be long before the first century is over. All of them are dead. And then what would happen to baptism if the authority is given to individuals? So rather, Christ gave the authority to the church, to the institution of the church, so that all those who follow afterwards can do the same thing that the apostles did, make disciples and baptize them. So baptism was given to the living church. And the living church is the same one that Christ started, the same one that still preaches the same doctrines of one baptism that Jesus gave them. Now, false churches then that don't come from the apostles, who don't, do not continue in the apostles' doctrine, do not have the authority to baptize. Roman Catholics and Protestants don't have the authority to baptize. And that's the reason why Baptists rebaptized. Because they didn't respect that authority. Only true churches can baptize. So we didn't recognize anyone else's authority. And so that contributed hugely to our persecution. And the Berean Baptist Church still stands on this doctrine. In this respect, we are still Anabaptist. We do the very same thing. And I know there are a lot of people that don't like it. We still have the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4. I've experienced this many times uh, in talking to people that want to become members of Berean, that there are some people that have an emotional attachment to their baptism. When they come here, they've been baptized by someone else, someone uh, not a, a church of like faith and order. Now, understand, I'm not saying that Berean Baptist Church is the only church that can baptize. I'm saying the churches that are like Berean, following the Apostles' Doctrine, those have the authority to baptize. So we have some people who come and uh, they are attached to their baptism. They haven't been baptized in a church of like faith and order. And so I tell them, uh, before you can become a member of Berean, 
you have to be baptized by either by us or have been baptized by a church of like faith. But then they have that emotional attachment to it. But the emotional attachment that a person has to it doesn't make it right. The, the authority comes from the scriptures. It's God's word that makes it right. And I've heard this many times when people talk to me about this. Oh, you want me to be baptized? Well, I can't do that because I felt so good when I was baptized. I felt so free. I felt refreshed. I felt liberated. I felt this. I felt that. But how you feel does not make baptism right. What makes it right is what the Word of God says. And when you run across people who say, well, I think I felt something, I think I got something when I was baptized, then they weren't baptized properly anyway. Because you don't get anything when you get baptized. The authority for baptism has to be right. It has to be the right mode, the, the right authority. And then the fourth requirement that baptism requires the proper design. And we've kind of danced all the way around this when uh, all through this message. It means that baptism has to be done for the right reason. Let's listen to the fourth clause of the statement of faith. To show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to new life. That matches what we read in Romans chapter 6. In verse 5 it says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. What is baptism's design? My first two observations are negative. That baptism is not for salvation. Baptism does not regenerate lost souls. We're not born again in the water. Now there's a church over here on uh, Petaluma Hill Road. That if you were to visit it and listen to their preacher, he would tell you this very thing. He would say, you meet the blood of Christ in the water. That you're going to be regenerated in the water. And this is what people think so many times. The ones that say, oh, how good that baptism made me feel. I felt clean when I was baptized. Well, that's okay if you went into baptistry dirty and some of the cake dirt fell off of you. Then, all right, you might feel clean. But it's not a cleansing process. That's not what baptism is for. There is no scripture that says that baptism regenerates. There's some people that like to force it into John 3, verse number 5, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he said, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. And when they say water, they try to force baptism into that scripture. But Jesus is not talking about baptism there. In Acts 16, 30 and 31, a question is asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer comes back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It doesn't say you will be saved if you get baptized. Jesus said to a woman, he said, thy faith hath saved thee. In John 3.16 and John 3.36, where it talks about our salvation, there is no mention of baptism. The thief on the cross died on that day and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And he wasn't baptized. 
when Philip spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch and when Paul, Peter preached to Cornelius, neither one of them had to be baptized to be saved. As we mentioned a moment ago, they both went to the water as saved believers in Jesus Christ. Baptism for salvation cannot work because it's theologically impossible. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. There is no room for rituals in justification. So baptism is not designed to save. Then the second negative, baptism is not a sacrament. Uh, we covered that uh, extensively in the last message. The design of baptism is not to confer grace on lost souls. And also, as we said, neither is it to give any kind of grace to those that are already saved. So baptism has nothing to do with that. Baptism, get this down now if you want to take an extra note. Baptism is not an inward work. Baptism is not an inward work. Baptism is an outward work that is performed by man. And if the, listen, if the inward work required an outward work, then it would be sacramental, and it would be sacerdotal. What that means is, then you, in order to be saved, would have to have the assistance of someone else. That you couldn't be saved unless you have someone to baptize you. That's what you call a sacerdotal salvation. Now, that then puts at least a part of your salvation into the hands of others. This is easy to figure out why Roman Catholicism loves this so much, because that puts the means of control into the hands of their magisterium. They're the ones that give you salvation. Without them, you can't have it. It doesn't save. It's not a sacrament. So what is it? It's design. There are two purposes. Two purposes in the design. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. It's to show that you have believed. It shows that you have identified with Christ. Listen to this important text in Galatians 3. For ye are all children of God, how? By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this is what baptism is for. In baptism, we put on Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means like a soldier puts on a uniform. Um, a soldier puts on his uniform, but the uniform doesn't make him a soldier. The uniform identifies him that he is a soldier, and that's what baptism is. It shows that we have believed. The Bible never says that the way that you identify with Christ is to walk down this aisle and that you come and shake the preacher's hand and you turn around and face the congregation and say, hey, I'm saved, I'm identified with Christ. The Bible doesn't say that's the way that you identify with him. The way you identify is through an act of obedience. The act of baptism, that shows what we have believed in our heart, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So it's the picture what we have believed. And then I'll add this, that if you would not obey in baptism, the very first command that God has given to a disciple, if you will not obey in baptism, then what reason is there for anyone to believe that you're actually saved? Now we have to be very careful with that, and take it in the right way, that if a person, baptism will not save, but if a person is unwilling to be baptized, then we have to stand back and look at that and say, if you're saved, why aren't you obedient to Christ? Why haven't you identified with him? What are you ashamed of? Certainly you ought to be baptized. So you're out of compliance if you don't follow the very first commandment that Christ has given. To show people that you are saved, 
you are baptized as a believer. And then finally, the second design of baptism is that baptism is the door into the church. Now if we go back to Acts 2.41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So they're baptized, and then they're added. But we stop there for just a moment. What if they'd not been baptized? What if they said to Peter, Well, Peter, we believe. That's good enough then they would have rejected Peter's message. What was his message to them? Repent and be baptized. That's the message. Repentance and faith that does not yield obedience is not true saving faith. True saving faith always yields obedience to the Lord, obeying His command. And a person who says, I'm saved and doesn't obey the Lord, has, as I said a moment ago, has no reason for anybody to believe that they're actually saved. So, you, you believe, you obey, and you're baptized. And why? Because the baptism shows that you have a, you've, changed, you've had a change of heart. Your willingness to submit to what God tells you to do shows that your heart has actually been changed. Did you know? You should know. We studied 1 John, that one of the large parts of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, is to show how we prove that we are saved. And one of the things John says, obey the Lord. Keep the commandments. And didn't Jesus say that? If you love me, keep my commandments. We're coming up soon to a study of the Ten Commandments. And this is a so a huge important part of that. If you love him, keep his commandments. So the very first commandment that he gives a person who comes to him in faith is this. Be baptized. So we need to be obedient to that. So what do we say, we say then? Well, what if they hadn't been baptized? What if they all said, well, you know, belief is good enough. We're not going to be baptized. Well... They wouldn't have been added. They wouldn't have been added to the church. They wouldn't have been in the membership of the church. What happens if people don't obey the command to be baptized that Christ has given? I'll tell you what happens. The church dies. The 120 wouldn't have had anybody added to them, would they? And in a few years, through persecution or natural deaths, they're all dead, they're all gone, and there is no church. People have to be added. And the way that the Lord says they are added is through their baptism. So we must have people. We have to have people that are obedient to the Lord in order to have a church. You understand what I'm saying? You can't have a church without it. So we must obey the Lord. He knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He knows how this thing is kept alive. Now, the way that they, these people got into the church was not a mystical Holy Spirit baptism. You don't see that in Acts chapter 2. Mythical universal church never baptized a single person into membership. We are baptized into the membership of the church by water baptism. We obey the command. And then, when we do, the door swings open to membership. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without the church, the gospel light will go out. So now what have we got? Well, you've got a succession of things. No baptism, no church, no church, no gospel, no gospel, no heaven. Nothing but hell. You see how important it is? You miss the commandment that Christ gives and obey him. You've messed up a lot of things. God knows what he's doing. So here are the four qualifications for scriptural baptism. Right subject, who must be a believer. The right mode, immersion in water. The right authority, only a true New Testament church can baptize. And the right design, that is to identify with Christ and to enter into the communion of the body. Historical Baptist, like Berean Baptist Church 
still maintain those principles. We keep, we keep the ordinances in the true fashion. We keep them in the way that they were delivered to us by Jesus and the apostles. We're careful to do that because they are so extremely important. It's the way that we keep the Lord's promise to reserve, preserve the church until Christ comes again. That's how important that you get all four of these things right and that you have a scriptural baptism. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you, Lord, for uh, the truth of your word and showing these things to us so that we can do what's right, we can follow you and be the church that you want us to be, have, a true, have the true doctrines that the apostles taught uh, as they were pillars of the truth and uh, purveyors of truth. Lord, we just thank you that you've given it to us and preserved it for us through your word. Help us to stand strong on it. And though most uh, churches in the world today have given up on these principles, even many Baptists have given up on them, help us to be a church that always maintains the, the principles of the faith that our Baptist forefathers died for. This is the truth of the word, and we want to preach the truth. Help us, Lord. Be with us. Uh, strengthen us as your church. And again, we're thankful for those that are here tonight to hear the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org